All right. You know, uh, I don't know if you guys ever looked up. So, Laboring Woman is our chapter. And, uh, you know, at first glance, it sounds kind of strange, but it's actually in the Bible. Call me crazy. Take the Bible seriously. Isaiah 42, verse 14 is the specific verse. Yeah, we read that in chapel. But I printed it out in the little handout there, if you got it or not. I don't know. It's, but it's... Uh, so, um, there, actually, to be honest, there's, I mean, obviously, there's a lot of things happening within this chapter. There's three main images that the author uh, writes about, but one more than the others, and one is the laboring woman, the other one is midwife, and then the last one is the breastfeeding mother. Um, the, uh, I only want to print it one page, so this is only on laboring woman, but we can talk about midwife, midwifery. And also breastfeeding mothers, because um, breastfeeding mothers, I know this is, whoever's like, if anyone like downloads this podcast, is going to be like, what? <laughs> but um, breastfeeding mothers is actually much more pervasive in, in uh, medieval art. And uh, yeah, so uh, that one is, uh, I'm surprised that she didn't include any pictures in the book, but maybe she couldn't, I don't know. But um that is, uh, that was a little more complicated for a variety of reasons. But so just because I didn't put any of that stuff on the handout doesn't mean I, I don't want to talk about it. I, I I love talking about it, but I just yeah, there's only so much time we have. So uh, as we always do, any thoughts on the chapter? Let's start out with because, uh, like I said, if you have nothing to talk about, I have plenty to talk about. Any any uh, questions, critiques, criticisms, comments? Krista. I just was, uh, was wondering, what is the father thinking of the laboring women? They never have experience. <laughs> well, oh, that's a good question. Uh, d- well, I, I, I re- so Krista asked, what does the father think? Um, yeah, so I, rephra- I rephrased that entire chapter does this apply to me? You know, kind of personal. Um, and it, it does. So, um, I'll try not to make too many jumps. But, the laboring woman, well, first of all, the laboring woman in Isaiah 42 is, is different than most of our thinkings of laboring women. Because when we think of laboring women, we think of what kind, what's the outcome? A child coming. But in Isaiah 42, that's actually not, not it. Okay, so that, that's where things are kind of hard to keep everything in our brains as we read this chapter. It's because it's so easy to conflate birthing women. <laughs> because when we, when we think of birthing women, we think of birthing and pushing and baby coming out. And for me, that is really... That image of birthing and breathing and pushing and baby coming out is an image for every Christian, regardless if you're male, female, had a child, didn't have a child, whatever. Um, And that's really because of the Annunciation and Christmas. So is Christmas for everybody? Of course. I mean, it better be or else, you know, most of our lives in the next... 
you know, two months are going to be a waste of time. But how is Christmas for everybody is, uh, is the question that we need to kind of meditate upon, especially if you... So for Christmas, for mothers, takes on a different characteristic than someone who's not a mother. But at the same time, uh, throughout Christian history, Mary has played a very prominent role in Christian piety. Mary is kind of the par excellence disciple because she is the one who said yes. Now, she said yes. The Annunciation, March 25th, is the Annunciation for everybody. Of course it is. But how is it for everybody? I would say then that the, the, it, the, when the Holy Spirit comes to Mary, it comes in a very unique way because it births a child. At the same time, when the Holy Spirit comes to each one of us, regardless of her mother or not, the Holy Spirit does overshadow the person and gives birth to Jesus in us. We can't, we can't talk about Jesus in our hearts without this happening. Um, whether we want to talk about Jesus in our hearts, that's another discussion. But the life of Christ in us, of course, in Mary is very concrete because there's a baby inside her who's called Jesus. So she, we can say Jesus is in her very concretely. But of course, the church has said, well, that's not just for Mary, that's for each one of us. That we do labor with Christ in us and we give birth to Jesus. Now, how do, so this is all metaphor, of course, for me, right? I mean, but at the same time, it's true. Holy Spirit births Jesus in us, uh, so I carry the presence of Christ in my body, and uh, we labor with Christ in us. We struggle with having this life in us. Okay. At the same time, when Jesus is birthed, how is Jesus birthed in us? Well, the chapter was sort of helpful for this understanding is that when a woman goes into labor and gives birth, she's putting her life on the line. Right? There's a, there's a chance that she's going to die. And it's even for today. I mean, obviously medicine has <laughs> come 2,000 years advance uh, from Jesus' time. But at the same time, that birthing is fundamentally understood in terms of giving oneself up for the other. That is love. So how do I birth Jesus? Love. By giving myself up for another. And then Jesus is birthed in the world. Jesus' presence is in the world. That's how we usually talk about it. We usually don't talk about it in this understanding of birthing, laboring. That's just we don't talk about it that way. But throughout Christian history, there, is, there are people who do talk about it that way. And um, she highlights some of those in the chapter. Again, my, my fundamental question about the chapter is really her exegesis, her interpretation of the Bible. I think Isaiah 42 is a great image, but at the same time, it's not really about birthing. So, and she doesn't keep those lines clear. But birth, that is part of this, you know, that's part of Christian history. Absolutely. Um, I just don't know if that's part of Isaiah. All right. So the, uh, so the fundamental 
the little light went off again. No, it's back on. It's blinking. Probably the battery then. Do you have an extra battery? We'll see. So yeah, so what do the fathers think? I think very hard about this chapter. That's right. It, it was ve- it was very confusing. That, okay, so that that part was yeah. So um, well, first of all, the imagery is a little little, little different because I thought that I wish you t- switching subjects into midwifery. Like, are you singing while God's delivering? Because that's the that's the uh, kind of illustration she uses, right? That hey, when people, women give birth now, they put music on or whatever that helps. Um, Doesn't always help, I don't think. But um, yeah, so you know, are we singing for God or for us? So, like, when we go to church, are we singing for God? Well, we're singing praises to God, um, but we're singing praises for the things He's done for us. So, it, it's a I, well, yeah. I wouldn't get hung up. That that part, I actually put that in the margins of my book. Like, don't get hung up on this. Because really, it seems like a tangent that's unneeded. I mean, it doesn't seem like it fits with the laboring woman anymore. Because if we're, she she spends most of her time kind of putting us in this laboring woman position, and then all she starts talks about like singing while God's laboring. That would seem like a midwife position. I've been I've been at four births with a midwife. That seems like her role rather than the laboring woman singing. Yeah, there's, I mean, there, there's, definitely, there's definitely words coming out of the laboring woman's mouth. I don't know if we would declare that being... I think it's more like what the Bible says in Isaiah 42, verse 14, the gasping and panting and crying out. Yeah. Anyways, yeah, so... Those are today's that's right, yeah, maybe it's, it's very prophetic, yes, the screaming and yelling of today's, uh, yeah. Okay, was there, speaking of screaming, Holly. Right. Yeah, the breastfeeding mother. That's breastfeeding now. Yep. A nursing mother has to like sit down when she isn't wishing to because her baby needs her. I don't. I don't make that connection necessarily with God because I think He already knows. He's, he's reorienting us. <laughs> That's right. To his will. Yeah, yeah. Not him to our will. That's exactly right. Yeah, so this would be um, where the analogies somewhat get... Well, again, this is all very abstract for me because I have not been a breastfeeding mother. (laughs) But in my observations, and just based on the uh, biblical text there, too, um, the... uh, Mother, yeah, I would say mothers do their best to put their child on on a a uh, not on the child's schedule, but on I don't say the mother's schedule, but on a schedule. 
So the goal, not all, but the thing is, though, is the, the reality, though, is, is that there has, eventually the child has, life cannot be about the child. There has to be a, a reorientation even for the child. And I, I think that's the interesting image of the breastfeeding mother is that there is an, a, a reorientation, not so much for God, but for, for us. And that image of the orientate, or you know, this this kind of re-looking, is primarily this this intimate relationship of uh, the the. I think I've quoted this before. There's this uh, guy, Ian Cross. He has a really nice imagery of the, and I think he gets it from some early church father about how the loving mother gazing at the breastfeeding child. And that the child has to, you know, so the child cries out, right? So that already demonstrates the need of the child for the mother. And so God's already has that orientation. I don't think he has to change, like Holly said, I don't, I don't think that has to change anything. He's there for us. He's already has his eye on us. And... In this imagery, it's it's the uh, the child and kind of I don't say reorienting. It's just uh, having his his uh, well his my, again speaking very self-referentially. Uh, the child then his or her vision being cast on the mother because you know biologically speaking, right? The, the child can only see you know a foot or so away, and so you know this is the thing when the the, the the, the breastfeeding child, the only, really the only thing that a child can look at is the mother. So you have this great imagery of this uh, intimate relationship. But yeah, I, 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 I wrote a big question mark in, in that because not every breastfeeding mother feeds her child at, the, at a moment's whim. Yeah, well, first of all, sometimes you just can't. I mean, you're driving along on I-290 and you're, you can't stop. I mean, you know, so you got to suffer through it. So, but, you know, I think that's a whole other thing, too. Well, never mind. There's a lot of imagery she left out. You know, I mean, yeah. You know, when a child cries, right, when the mom's breastfeeding, things happen, right? So there is this intimate connection going on between the mother's desire to help the child, just kind of as reflex. Yeah. <laughs> this is where I really wanted the pictures, and I only. So the unfortunate thing was is that uh, I think she mentions it in her footnotes. There's this book about uh, by this woman Bynum, I believe her last name is, and she actually traces the medieval art of Jesus as a breastfeeding mother. I found one, uh, it's black and white, it's really grainy. <laughs> I just Googled it. I was like, you know, I'm just going just gonna, to just see it, you know. So I Googled it. Which, you know, most of my research begins with Google. Um, breastfeeding Jesus. That, that one came up, yeah. This is another thing, too. So, so the medieval imagery of breastfeeding Jesus, we're like, this is confusing for us, but this is our modern understanding of gender getting in the way. 
See, medieval medieval times didn't have this this uh, this uh, kind of difficulty. They could they could understand breastfeeding Jesus because Jesus's body is from who? Mary. Yeah. So there is a there is this whole. They say this is the thing we don't know this, and this is where I I don't know too much either. So I didn't feel very confident, but. One of the medieval understandings of Jesus was he got the Holy Spirit from the Father and the body from Mary. So within his body now is male and female, which does, uh, again, they're they're not thinking biologically. They can't think like we do. They don't have a 21st century understanding of science. So there is within every person this maleness, femaleness, so, now, of course, Jesus does feed us with the blood. His blood poured out, shed for us, uh, you know, on the altar in the church. Um, did you know that bl- blood and, and breast milk were connected in medieval times? Who would have thought? So, you have a whole worldview going on in, in medieval times that's very foreign to us, and frankly, very foreign to me, and I don't know enough. And so you have this imagery now going on. You could say it's right or wrong, whatever, but we have, to, we have to struggle with this. Which goes to one of the points I wanted to make about the book. Is that I know it's very easy to disregard some of these things, but I would be very slow to do that. Um, just because we can't discard things because we don't like it. We have to have a legitimate answer. So let's spend a little time, struggle with it. Feel the pain, feel the burn. You know, I can jazzercise. Okay. Okay, but anyways, that's breastfeeding mother. Uh, we could talk. But so Jesus, yeah. There's so the one image is Jesus. He uh, he he's the one that's on the internet. So go ahead and feel free to Google it. Um, is him? He he opens up his uh, robe, right where his breast is, and it's his wound. And he's he's actually he's holding a, a host. And and the blood is kind of coming out, and it's going into a woman's, uh, to a nun's, like he's distributing the Lord's Supper. Just the way it is. So, got to get comfortable with it. Well, I mean, unless you don't want to study it, that's fine. But, yeah. Um, okay. Let's let's look at Isaiah 42. Okay. Isaiah 42, the laboring woman. The context of Isaiah 42 is 10 through 17, and I, I printed it on the front page there, and I kind of put it in this little, I don't know what you call that. I can't remember. But I, uh, I kind of set off the, the verses to kind of demonstrate how verse 14 is kind of functioning in that context. So you have 10 through 12 that it kind of announces this new song and the whole world is going to sing this new song. These people from, uh, you know, Kedar to Selah to the coastlands, the mountains. It's going to be this, this great thing. Okay, then it switches in 13. And 13, 14, and 15, I would kind of argue, are connected and, and kind of uh, create another uh, subtext sub there. So, the Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war. He stirs up his zeal. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. 
And then you have verse 14. For a long time I've held my peace. I've kept still, restrained myself. Now I will cry out like a woman in labor. I will gasp and pant. (laughs) I will lay waste mountains and hills and dry up all their vegetation. I will turn the rivers into islands. I will and dry up the pools. Lead the blind and and do good things for them. Okay. Um, And then it switches back into the third person at the very end in verse 17. So what's going on here? People are going to say, okay, I already said that. Um, now, the middle of the, of the verses is the image of the laboring woman. So it, it is a, it's a point of reference. So things are kind of building up and then coming back. There's this ebb and flow. And that, so that plays a very prominent place in this text. So for her to write a whole chapter about it is really not unusual. It's, it's actually in, in this kind of section. So this functions as a very important spot. Um, uh, now the voice changes in verse 14 from the third person to the first person. So the Lord is speaking here. The Lord is saying that he will be like a woman in labor. So it's not like she's the Lord. That's one of the images the Lord uses for himself. Um, but it's connected to verse 13. So what this verse does is connects a mighty man of war with a laboring woman. Shirley. I know she's referring to the comparison of pain that Christ had as well as that of childbirth. But when I saw 13, for some reason 13, 14, 15 stuck out with me coming from a household of males. Yeah, right. Uh, We had a pretty hefty discussion on it that it's not really all fair and right for women to That's right. So this is this as a perspective. I'm trying. I mean, I was looking at it as a labor perspective. And right. My husband and sons that were home at the time. We got in a pretty intense feeling and emotions about how a male would look at it. That is more lifting someone up to Christ and saying, "Help this person. Help you lift them. You lift my friend. The cries do function for something. That's right. That's exactly right. Now, Julie. We'll go to Nancy next. Can do whatever he wants. He can do whatever he wants. So it's not like God is not necessary. But because he is holy and just, he has to execute justice. And so that's Well yeah, how he executes justice is the question, not so much whether he will or not. Um and that that's the kind of the, the Isaiah text is you know, this this section eventually winds up into Isaiah fifty three, fifty four, fifty five which are, you know, the ones that we read around 
Easter time, well, Holy Week. Nancy, but, um, yeah, we'll come back to Julie's comment. Yeah. It's simile. It's simile. It's not a metaphor. Simile. I will cry out like a So the only thing he's comparing is to cry. And it seems Lauren Winter is just making a huge, huge analogy. Well, she... Herod that fox. They're not comparing Herod with something with a pointy nose fur and walking four legs. It's one particular element of the fox. Right. So, I mean, that's what I think here. Well, that, so she does do that, actually, Nancy. She does talk about the breathing, right? Her first main emphasis in that is the breathing. And within the Hebrew text itself is breathing. I was going to play a recording of it, of it, but frankly, it's not super helpful, But because there's a lot of breathing and gasping in Isaiah 42, is that within verse 42 is this <laughs> sound. It's pretty funny. The, um, well, I shouldn't say funny. It's pretty interesting that the, Hebrew, the, the writer actually included that in, in his discussion. Um, but the whole point, though, is that it's until later that she really jumps off the text. Uh, right now, the breathing aspect is very important. The ramifications of the breathing, though, is where she goes crazy, or goes a little different, because she talks about mitigating pain. But that text does not function, breathing does not function to mitigate pain, actually, in this text. Pain, uh, the, I'm sorry, pain, uh, the shouting, the breathing, the gasping, panting goes along with what Julie said. It's to announce something happening. Like the mighty man of war is to shout, he is about to do what? He's going to do something about this thing. So this is where we have to kind of sit still with the biblical text and ask ourselves what's going on here. Because there is a connection between a man of war and a laboring woman, which I think is very refreshing. Because she does bring this up later, is that the laboring woman is an image of strength. Because the gasping and the crying out and the panting, what does it do to the land? This is verse 15. It lays waste the mountains and the hills. The shout, the word of the Lord, the shout of God, will, will and he says, I'm going I'm to pick some images to use when he's a man of war and a laboring woman. So, yeah, Nancy, you're right. It's, 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 you got it. we, we have to stay, that's why I wanted to put this here to really kind of refocus us. But it is a very powerful image. She does get that right, and I think we, that's why I want to use it, is that um, this, and this is, goes back to Krista's question, is that this image is for everybody, not just for mothers, is that a man, I mean, I, I'm not a soldier, so the man of war is just as abstract to me as a laboring woman, but yet God uses this for, for everybody. So we, we have to find ourselves in this text, and, and we, we do. But the whole point, though, is, is that what Julia said is that God is now doing something about this situation in Isaiah. Is that he, God is going to cry out, take care of business, and the panting and crying out, and, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to lay waste to the land. But at the same time, what else will it do? And this goes now to the connection between the Gentiles confessing or singing this new song and then the blind being led 
into uh, into the light, into the level ground. I mean, how do you, how does one lead the blind? By the hand and sound. What is happening right now? There's a big sound happening within this in the in the middle of the, the biblical text. So, um, and then of course, then the the war that's happening is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities. And then that's the last part is how um, those who believe in idols will be put to shame. And so. So the, um, this image of the, of the so I, I really, what I, what I like about this this image is the fact that a woman is just as strong as a, a mighty man of war, a laboring woman, and her strength though, because both of them are willing to give up their lives for another person. We often talk about the sacrifice of soldiers. That's absolutely true. But we need to understand that there are plenty of sacrifices happening throughout normal life that are happening. And that goes along you know, with what kind of Shirley said was, is that especially in this text now, in the early, you know, however thousands of years ago this happened or was written, that the mother is, could very well give up her life for the child. All right, uh, Kirby. I think he's kind of chosen some of the most extreme things that man and right. can do. And yeah, that's not anywhere near as extreme as laying waste to the mountains and hills. It's like, so he's given images to humans that are the most extreme, like, you know, most extreme thing that he's ever put. Mm-hmm. My experience in terms of screaming at her. Yeah, right. War is the most manly thing. Or even birth is the most Yeah, right. Womanly thing. Right. We can't do any of the remaining things in the earth. That's exactly right. So what is the point is to declare God's God's power or strength. And where is that all going to be directed then to leading the blind to the light and leveling the ground? Which of course, leveling the ground, does that remind us of anything in the New Testament? Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Which is very important because that's actually where I I kind of lead the Isaiah forty two. But before we get there, if we get there, uh, strength, and she she brings this strength and vulnerability together, which I think is important for us today. You know, you guys have heard me talk about Brene Brown before. I don't. She couldn't have said it any better. But um, you are. Uh, when you're most vulnerable, it's, it's really where you test your strength. And soldiers are vulnerable. I mean, you know, I didn't want to talk about soldiers too much. But uh, when soldiers, well, so, um, especially old, even now, it doesn't really matter. Soldiers, when they go into battle, they don't want to be exposed. Because what? They get shot. Yeah, they die. So they want to, they want to, they want to, they want to cover up that vulnerability. They want to, you know. Which makes sense. In the laboring woman, of course, she there's there's no birth happening if you're if you're concerned about modesty. Yeah, but anyways, but the whole point though is that at at, at the vulnerability is also a sign of strength, 
And we see that actually in the crucifixion itself, when Jesus is most vulnerable, is, is in the crucifixion. But it's precisely where he's showing his strength over, the, over Satan and the powers of, the, of darkness. Um, anyways, uh, we've kind of talked about all that. Yeah, the one thing, uh, yeah, okay, yeah, okay, great. We've already talked about that. Any questions about that so far? I mean, kind of moving quick. But the, the point is that I, I think there's some interesting connections with the New Testament, specifically with the Gospel of Mark. Um, but before we get to the New Testament, Isaiah 42, 1 through 9 is, is a, an important passage. I mean, so the, obviously these are all connected because Isaiah 42, 10 through 17 comes after 1 through 9. 1 through 9, uh, verse 1, is the servant of the Lord in whom he is well pleased. That's, uh, so the, the servant, the suffering servant that we get in 53, 54, and 55 of Isaiah, you know, the one that's pierced for our transgressions, you know, stricken, smitten, is, uh, is, the, is the one in 42. Um, and he's the one who's working in 10, seven, 10 through 17. Okay. Now, in the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 1, 1, it says, uh, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, and you can ask yourself if there's a colon there or a comma, according to the prophet Isaiah. And then there's the quote about uh, John the Baptist, make way straight of the Lord. Um. But that, that whole uh, title is that Isaiah plays a very prominent role in the Gospel of Mark, and especially in this beginning. T- uh, the debate is whether it just plays in the beginning or for the entire book of the Gospel of Mark. And I think that's, uh, I don't know. Uh, could be both, I don't know. Um, anyways, so what we have then in the baptism of Jesus is, is uh, when the heavens are opened... We have a father saying, this is my son, my beloved son, with whom I'm well pleased, quoting Isaiah 42. So this, this one, Jesus, is, all, you know, is connected with what happens to you know, the suffering servant in Isaiah, middle section of Isaiah. So there's a connection between then, oh, and then, okay, now, the only other place in the Gospel of Mark that we find out that Jesus is the Son of God, aside from demons, which, of course, is a good indication that we, we don't really want to be associated with demons. We want to be associated with people. So the only other person in the Gospel of Mark that confesses Jesus to be the Son of God, and when I say Son of God, I mean the Son of God, not the Son of Man or the Messiah, but this phrase, Son of God, is in fact the centurion when Jesus dies. So baptism in the Gospel of Mark is a womb and a tomb. There's these connections, which that plays out in the early church quite a bit. But is um, so the baptism is is uh, is starting something, and the crucifixion it, uh, gives character to that. So the crucifixion cries, I would say, are if if, we, if we're going to use this now, I, I'm testing this. I don't know if this is true. Or, I mean true or not, but um, crucifixion cries are, are, are kind of labor cries. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, it's the crying out, the gasping, the panting, because right after this, Jesus gives up, he breathes his last, it's the final breath, and Jesus, and then that leads the, the centurion to confess Jesus. 
it's it's in this very moment that he he gives himself up. So how do you know Jesus is the Son of God for the centurion? It's because he died. He died this way. And that death has now led to the blind to see the light, which kind of fulfills then the, uh, Isaiah 40, 42. Because he's a pagan. He's blind. And of course, uh, you know, think of it in dramatically, it's dark now. When Jesus dies, complete darkness, and he, Jesus is dead. And the, the centurion announces the revelation of God in their presence, in the midst of the darkness, in the midst, it's in the midst of the death. It's a very powerful image, um, but it demonstrates how God has actually not forsaken them. So Jesus' cry when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The answer is, well, I, ha- I haven't forsaken you. And how do we know that? It's because the centurion confesses Jesus to be the Son of God himself. I don't know if that's true or not. I think, I think, it's, I think it's worth kind of pondering and thinking about this imagery of the breathing. Again, when we go back to the laboring woman, really, the Isaiah 42, what we have to focus on is this breath, this, this breathing, this crying out. And not so much the birthing aspect. It's a powerful cry. It's a strong cry that does things, it changes things. Yeah, now the one thing that she does in the book that I'm not sure if we can is she connects the breath with the breath of God at the beginning of creation. The thing is, though, is you can't really do that exegetically. It's not the same word. Oh, but I don't know if she said this, but the words in Isaiah 42, verse 14. Two out of the three words for crying out, panting, and gasping, this is the only place in holy, the Holy Scripture that they happen. So there is no point of comparison. There's one of them that you can compare with other passages, um, but it just really accentuates this, the breathing, the, the kind of this crying out business. In travail. Yeah. But the gasping and the panting, that's how it's translated in the ESV. Those are the only two places that's actually in the Bible. So, so I don't know if you can really connect it with the creation, the breath of creation, or the breath of Pentecost. I think you just go other places for that, not for this text. So, The breath is combined with much pain. Yeah, well, yeah, then that's why I think it's a, an image of the crucifixion, not so much of creation and Pentecost. I think the crucifixion, and also the crucifixion fits within verse 13, the, mighty, the, the man of war. Jesus cries out, man of war. Um, anyways, I, it's a hard image. Okay, it's it's a very peculiar image because when you start reading the Bible, you realize that, ooh, all these connections I thought could come out actually aren't aren't actually there, the birthing aspect. Because I mean, if if it was a laboring woman that gives birth, oh man, that's that that we could fill that up with a lot of stuff because of baptism in terms of um, the church births new converts. 
um, Mary. I mean, all this stuff. But I don't think that's actually in Isaiah 42. Yeah. Holly. That's right. So that's a birthing aspect again. I mean, yeah. So again, the laboring mother, uh, Revelation chapter 12, St. Michael's Day. It's a great passage, one of my favorites. Because, you know, it's a lot of action, dragons and stuff. Is um, when the woman gives birth to a son and the dragon wants to come and get it. But again, it's just birthing mother. It's a birthing mother, not a laboring mother. Maybe that's an easy way to distinguish the two. Um, and I, I, I haven't done it. So back to Julie's comment, too, though, about what's going to happen. It's, it's kind of unknown. We don't know what's going to happen in Isaiah 42. The crying out and the gasping and the panting. Will there be a birth? It inevitably leads to birth. It does, but that's not just what it, the words on the page say. That, that, again, I want to, I'm a little, maybe too much of a stickler on this. And maybe later in Isaiah, there is this image that comes out again, but it doesn't use these words anymore. So it's not an image of a birthing mother, though, in Isaiah which would fit really well. It would, it would make things easier for us. But maybe that's the point. It's not supposed to be easy. Holly? Uh, I, I just feel like it goes back to the strength thing. I before, yeah. It's about the, the strength of that. Right. Two examples of, of, that you can relate to as a man or a woman. These are the, like, your most powerful moments. Yeah, I wouldn't say man or woman. I would say man and woman because, again, I'm not a man. I don't, I'm not in war. I've never been in war. I don't intend to. And I would say that, that, that that's not necessarily like every guy in the Old Testament would, went to war either. And not every woman has Yeah, right. But, the, but these images are chosen, though, for their strength. And then we can understand that just simply through that. And I, that goes to, to Nancy's ask, critique of the chapter. And it's true. You know, we want to stick with what is actually on the words on the page. And I think Isaiah 42, 14 is fundamentally about this, this strength. That the cry and the gasping and the panting shows strength and it does something. Which, of course, is part of the redemption of the world. But the Gentiles singing new songs. And, yeah. Anyways. All right. Let's pray, and then we'll, uh, we'll see you next week. Next week is uh, laughter, um, which, is, uh, which is a really good one. Uh, Martin Luther's got a great quote from one of his table talks. He, uh, yeah, you can fight the devil by telling a joke. Of course, yeah. Laughter is very important for our family. One of my children's named after laughter, so let's pray. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.